0: Hello, and welcome to Kodish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series.
1: Hello, welcome to the Kodish podcast. I'm your host, O1O. I'm an engineer from Heroku. Today, we have two guests adam hannah and manley plaza from ae studio would you want to introduce yourself
2: sure um, so my name is uh, adam hannah i'm an engineer at ae studio uh, my background is actually in electrical engineering um, i started my my life uh, my my work life as a uh, engineer in the renewable energy space um, i worked for a little while as a research assistant at the national renewable energy lab before going into the private sector as a consultant, um, spending most of my career, early career uh, in the wind energy uh, industry. Did that for about five years and for about the past 10 years or so, I've been a software developer. Uh, and only recently, maybe late 2017, um, maybe January, 2018, uh, I got into blockchain and I kind of got in right before that run-up, um, the now infamous run-up um, you know, of, of Bitcoin up to like $20,000 $20, and Ethereum to like 12 or $1,400. Um, that's that's right. Kind of when I got in and, and started uh, developing, um, and have been um, a software uh, developer in blockchain uh, ever since.
0: Um, hey, I'm Melanie. Um, I'm a head of technology and uh, full stack developer at AE Studio. I um, also got into blockchain around the same time as Adam, so been there for the. The highs and the lows. Um, okay. I work at AU, working with um, a bunch of different clients. is a, a design, a data science, and development agency um, based in LA um, on Avikini. Um So we work with like different companies from like early stage startups to enterprise companies, um, building like cool tech products. Um, you know, so we love working with uh, blockchain companies, machine like doing different machine learning applications, um, and also just building like really awesome uh, products and apps. So we like to build products that. Um, Increased human agency, um, so it's called agency enterprise. Um, so basic idea is that um, we think that technology should empower people to make their own choices and choose uh, to do things that uh, will be good for them instead of manipulating them in various ways. Um, so yeah, we try to build empowering tech products. Blockchain is a great example of something that uh, <laughs> increases the agency of people. Very,
2: so. <laughs> very empowering, very agency uh, increasing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> what are the toolings around developing with or on blockchain? There are uh, a lot
2: of tools uh, available. Truffle is probably one of the most well-known tools, um, but basically uh, Truffle uh, allows you to spin up a kind of a a development uh, environment as an Ethereum developer uh, to allow you to compile your smart contracts, test your smart contracts, and to basically see how your, your smart contracts are going to behave, uh, you know, on the Ethereum network, there's other things um, like Ganache, which, which you know, allows you to spin up a whole bunch of fake test accounts and to, to have a, a test network uh, up and running before you decide to push your, your smart contract out into the into the real world. Uh, and then there are all these there are these things called test nets like uh, Rinkeby and Ropstein and, and all these different networks on the Ethereum network, uh, which basically are being run by miners for free. Uh, and they have these things called faucets. And you can request uh, test network funds to be deposited into your test wallet, uh, and then you can upload your smart contract and you can interact with it just like you would uh, on the Ethereum mainnet. And it's it's also a way for the, the, the core developers to test certain pieces of technology that they're thinking about introducing into the Ethereum mainnet. So uh, each test net uh, will typically have some minor differences uh, that are being uh, proposed and and uh, possibly uh, used for integration into the into the main net. Uh, and you know when you when you're ready, you can as a developer uh, go live and and, and push your, your smart contract. Uh, onto the Ethereum mainnet. But the barriers to entry are, are pretty small. Um, you know, if you if you go on, you know, learn X and Y minutes and you read through the Solidity example, you'll kind of, you know, you'll, you'll get a sense of it pretty quickly. There's there's not much there. It's not a complex language. It's not like C++ that has, you know, volumes that you have to learn to be a very well-versed developer. I really suggest developers... Uh, you know, try to write their first smart contract and find some blog posts and some tutorials, and you'll see how easy it is. It really is not not that difficult. Um, the rabbit hole does not go very deep, I promise. Um, <laughs> as as far as learning how to how to use these kinds of things, um, and and there's new things coming out all the time. Developers in the in the blockchain world are are very innovative, uh, and they're they're constantly introducing new things.
0: Um, getting started using Web three is also it's pretty easy. <laughs> like it, yeah. it, um, it makes it very accessible. Um, and smart contracts are also not as difficult. I mean, they're they're hard to write complicated ones, well, but they're definitely not hard to write something simple to get started.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I totally forgot that. That's a great point. I totally forgot about the Web three libraries and MetaMask. You know, MetaMask is a a browser extension which basically allows you to interact with your smart contracts and the Ethereum blockchain uh, directly through your browser. Um, And uh, yeah, there, there are just so many awesome tools out there that you can use.
1: Nice. We will make sure all the links will be in the show notes. Perfect. Blockchain is probably most famous for being the technology behind digital currency like Bitcoin and Ethereum. To better explain blockchain, perhaps let's start with explaining Bitcoin or Ethereum. What is Bitcoin?
2: You know, Satoshi really lays out his vision for Bitcoin. So, uh, by the way, for, for people that don't uh, don't know or aren't familiar, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto is the moniker for the person who released uh, this white paper. Basically, just I think it's like a twelve-page paper, um, not fairly technical to read at all, explaining his vision for Bitcoin. And in the very first sentence of the paper, he says, "You know, Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer." Electronic cash system. Uh, basically, he outlines this vision for this payment method that that no one controls. Uh, that you know that doesn't require any third party. There's uh, you know no need for a trusted authority in the system. Uh, rather, it's made of it's made up of just its users, and they can they can uh, use this decentralized network to send Bitcoin to each other. Um, and because he envisioned Bitcoin having some sort of a value, it could be seen as uh, basically a cash system or some way to transfer value among participants. Uh, and from a high level, that's essentially what Bitcoin is.
0: Yeah, Bitcoin's kind of like the, the OG cryptocurrency. <laughs> I, I think it's like really interesting how it was uh, basically created the system for people to be able to participate without being able to trust all the actors because there are certain rules in place to incentivize people to behave in a way that uh is expected and desired um and then a lot of the stuff that's like characteristics of bitcoin is kind of like the foundation for the blockchain ecosystem now like it's decentralized no one controls it anyone can join and participate in it's like a public blockchain um, you know, it's semi, uh, semi-anonymous, you can send transactions and they're not tied to a particular person, just an address. Um, at the same time, there's like authentication and non repudiation So you can tell that something happened and, and someone did it like that. It's a certain address did it. at least, um, you can't reverse the transactions. It's like highly secure. So you can tell they have integrity. Um, and you know, I think one thing that's interesting about Bitcoin in particular too, is that there's from the actual coin, um, like. There's a limited supply, so it's different from a lot of other fiat currencies where they're being printed. You can um, know that they're not going to be infinitely created, which is kind of interesting for uh, for the cryptocurrency system. You know, with people buying Bitcoin also.
1: So I have heard a lot about Bitcoin mining. What what exactly is that?
2: So ba- basically, the way that a Bitcoin miner works is they take. Transactions that have been submitted to them from people that are trying to use Bitcoin. So they're, they're trying to send transactions to people. And the miner is basically their, their whole job is to try to get those transactions onto the blockchain. And they do this thing called proof of work, which we'll get into uh, uh, in a little more detail later on. Uh, but they they take all of these transactions, they do this proof of work uh, calculation, uh, and then they try to get their block accepted onto the blockchain so they can get the reward and get the fees and move on to the next block. And from a really high level, that's all they're trying to do. They're just trying to take transactions, build blocks uh, and put them on the blockchain.
1: I guess now we can better explain what a blockchain is. So what is a blockchain?
2: A blockchain is is really uh, an ingenious invention. Before before the blockchain, really any transaction that two people wanted to engage in required a trusted third party. So, you know, basically in in uh, in this day and age, there's two options. You know, we can we can use paper currency, or we can use some sort of digital currency like a credit card or something like that. In both of those cases, we're both relying on a trusted third party uh, to help facilitate the transaction. So the example of the credit card is probably the easiest to explain. Uh, You know, basically what's happening is uh, I've gone through some sort of credit check with my credit card company. They know that I'm capable of spending X dollars per per month or they're willing to lend me X dollars per month. Uh, And so then when, when you want money from me, you can ask my credit card company. You can say, hey, can you give me money on this guy's behalf? Um, and they say, yes or no, either they decline my card or, or they let it go through. Uh, and then, you know, because it's a very large, well-respected credit card company that that transaction is good. Uh, and so long as you follow a couple of rules, you're, you're not going to get your money you know, reversed. Uh, and you allow me to leave the store. Um, now, the example of cash is a little harder to, to kind of fit into this this model, but essentially the trusted third party is the mint. You know, they go through certain things to make sure that the money isn't counterfeit. Uh, they have people investigating counterfeiters and taking counterfeit currency off the street. Uh, so if you receive a dollar bill and it, it looks reasonably, you know, non-counterfeit, you can basically be sure that it's a non-counterfeit currency. Uh, but in, in that case, you still require a trusted third party, you require the FBI, you know, or the Secret Service, whoever, to investigate counterfeiters, and you require the mint uh, to be, you know, ensuring that there's no counterfeit currency out there, so that you can know that you have actually received something of value. So that's basically how transactions happened for for a long time. Uh, and if there was, you know, a dispute, there was some legal, you know, framework that you could go through to dispute some sort of transaction. Bitcoin turns all of that on its head. It says, you know, what, what if we don't want to elect someone or nominate someone uh, to be a trusted party? How how can we still have these transactions? And basically, Satoshi invented this concept of, of CPU power as as a vote. So if if everyone joins a network and they they contribute computational power to that network. We can use that computational power to come to a consensus on what the state of the system should be. And so together, we can all be basically that trusted third party Um, and we can send money to each other and write these bit scripts and we don't need anyone else to verify a transaction. Um, But we're really just kind of, you know, understanding what this paradigm shift is going to do for us and and how it's going to affect us.
0: I think also um, blockchain kind of the the technology behind it is um, a little bit of uh, a black box or like intimidating, but it is like pretty simple and it's fundamental concept like it literally is just a chain of blocks. So it's just like part of this family of distributed ledger technologies that have existed, that is just creating this chain of blocks, linking them together using cryptography. So basically, you have the first Genesis block, and then there's certain transactions and data that go into this. Um, And then we're using concepts that have been around for a while. So just using uh, Merkle trees, there's these data blocks get associated with these leaf nodes, which are kind of like leaves on a tree and they just have like a cryptographic hash of the data. And then you work your way up the tree, continuing hashing all of these different nodes until you get to a root hash. And then, I mean, the nice thing about the cryptographic hashes too is that if you change any of the data in them, it changes the hash drastically. So it's not predictable. So like if I hash Melanie with a like just all lowercase, and I get a hash, then I, then I hash Melanie with a capital M. It's going to be a totally different thing, even though it seems like a really small change. So by having these hashes, if you change one transaction or you try to modify any of the data in the blockchain, it's going to, to change the root hash of that block, and then that root hash is used for the next block. So then the, root, so the hash of that block is going to change in every block down the chain. Basically, that's how you can know that the data wasn't changed. And then using these like um, consensus algorithms, we can tell which transactions are valid and which should be included in the next block um, and have all these distributed nodes agree You know, it's pretty simple. It is concept really.
2: Let's maybe give an example of uh, how someone might use the Bitcoin network. So, you know, let's say that I want to use the Bitcoin uh, network and I'm I'm not going to get into create a wallet. And and the first time that you've received money just yet, just for this example, I'll kind of explain that maybe at the end. But just imagine that you you do have a wallet and you you have some Bitcoin uh, in your wallet and you want to send someone some money. Uh, So the first thing you have to do is you have to get their their wallet address. And then you create a transaction. There's a lot of software that will do this for you. Um, you don't need to understand exactly what's going into it. But from a deeper level, when you received money in the past from someone, you basically received what are called the UTXOs. They're, they're unspent transactions. And they're, they're these little pieces of Bitcoin essentially And when you then want to send someone else Bitcoin, you have to, and your software does this for you, you don't have to do this, but you have to gather up previously unspent transactions. You need to sign them. You you basically need to prepare them uh, and you prepare them with information from the person that you're sending it to. And you do it in a way using your, your private key, which is basically just a cryptographic private key. And you, and you do it in a way that's verifiable by miners to make sure that, you know, you actually are the owner of these unspent transactions and you, you do actually desire to send them to the to the recipient. And what's what's also very important is that all of the UTXO needs to be sent. So let's say that I have a UTXO that's worth um, one Bitcoin, but I only want to send Melanie half a Bitcoin. Well, I, I, I can't break that UTXO. I have to I have to spend the entire UTXO. So. What I have to do is I have to send, if I send Melanie half of the UTXO because she wants half of Bitcoin, I then need to do something else with the other half. And either I create a new wallet, a new address, and I send it to that address or I send it back to myself. If I don't spend it, the miner will use it as a fee. So basically any time you send a transaction uh, and you want to include a fee to incentivize a miner to pick up that transaction, you just don't send the UTXOs to anyone. And the miner will take that as a fee. And if if you're building a a, a Bitcoin library from scratch and you you don't know that, you're you're basically just gonna be rewarding miners with a lot of uh, (laughs) mining fees. Um, But so after you've you've gathered those UTXOs, you've you've prepared them in a way that has the recipient's public key information and and you've you've signed that using your your private key. What you then do is you have to connect to a miner. You have to connect to a known miner uh, and you send that package to them. And then that miner broadcasts that request, that transaction, to all of the other miners that, that they're connected to. And then that mi- those miners do, do the same to all of the miners that they're connected to. And it goes into what's called the mempool. So these miners, they, they have this thing called a mempool, which is basically a collection of all of the transactions that are trying to get into the Bitcoin network. So all the people all over the world who are trying to send Bitcoin to each other should be represented in this mempool and ideally in an ideal case uh, every miner should have you know an exact replica of of this mempool basically everyone should know what all the transactions are and that's not really the case in in the real world you know it takes a little while for messages to propagate and things like that but for the most part most miners have access to uh, transactions that are trying to get into the next block now from a miner's perspective what they then do once they have all of these transactions in their mempool They then try to get those transactions into a block. And so what they do is they take the hash of the previous block. They then gather the transactions that they want to include. And there's a block size limit. And so what they do is they have to choose the ones that are going to be most profitable for them. So currently, they are rewarded for mining a block. So just simply by finding the next block, they get a block reward that's a ever decreasing block reward and eventually it will run out eventually in the future. And I forget the exact date uh, or the, the estimated date, um, but uh, there will be no more block rewards uh, and they'll only have to rely on these fees, these, um, these UTXOs that weren't sent anywhere. So they they're incentivized basically to include transactions with the highest fees first. So if you really, really want your transaction to go get through on the, the Bitcoin network, you, you have to include a higher fee. If you don't really care about it, if you don't care if it takes a couple hours or maybe even longer, uh, you can send a really low fee uh, and eventually maybe it'll get picked up by a miner somewhere. But uh, if you want it to get done fast, you have to include a higher fee. Then what the Bitcoin miners do is, is they create this thing called a, a Merkle tree hash you can think of a Merkle tree kind of like a pyramid. So you take all of the transactions and you put them at the base of your pyramid and then you take two transactions and then you take a hash of those transactions. Uh, I believe it's two. I'm not 100% sure, to be totally honest. We take a group of transactions. I believe it's two. You take a a hash of those and then you have your next level of your pyramid. And you can kind of see as you do this, as you go up, you take the two below you you and take a hash of that. You're kind of getting Fewer and fewer and fewer hashes until you get to what's called the Merkle root. So eventually you get to one hash that is a hash of the hashes of all of the transactions that are below you. It's kind of this pyramid with the transactions at the base. And then there's this thing called a nonce. So it's a nonce is basically a random number. Uh, And the Bitcoin miner just randomly guesses at what this nonce is. They just randomly increment or guess this nonce until the hash of the nonce, the Merkle root, and the previous hash match this pattern. Uh, And when they do, you send it out onto the network. uh, And... You know, other, other miners will basically verify that it's correct. They'll verify that the UTXOs that are in there uh, are valid UTXOs that they were signed properly. Uh, they do a hash themselves of the blocks uh, to get the Merkle root to make sure that matches. They check the nonce and the block hash and the previous block hash uh, to make sure that all of it all of it works. And if so, then they accept it. They put it basically in their stored memory of what the blockchain is, and then they go trying to work on the next block. They they go back to the mempool, they take transactions that are still available, and they start hashing again. And now if you were the miner who got that block accepted, you now get the block reward and you get all of the uh, the fees that were included uh, in that block. You get those fees into, uh, into your address uh, and... You just you're happy. You just got paid, and you continue on. You now try to get the next the next block. Um, and and Melanie brought up a really good point here, which is, you know, what what happens if you know multiple blocks get accepted at the same time? Because it takes about the the way that the Bitcoin works currently is they've they've set the difficulty so, such that roughly every ten minutes uh, a new block is going to be discovered. Uh, it's on average, and it gets it gets adjusted. This this difficulty gets adu- adjusted such that it takes roughly about ten minutes. So, you know, it happens all the time that that multiple miners all over the world might find a block roughly at about the same time. And what happens is you just keep going. And eventually, one of those chains is going to be more accepted by other miners in the network. One of those chains is going to get longer than the other one and longer and longer and longer. Uh, And the protocol says that you just accept the longest chain. Uh, And these chains that basically die off are orphaned or uncled. And they're no longer, you know, they're no longer considered valid. So what that means for you as a user is, when you send a transaction, you may see that your your transaction got included in a uh, in a block, but you're not necessarily sure that that is going to be the final chain. There might be there may be competing paths that the Bitcoin network is taking currently, and so you have to wait for a certain number of confirmations. So basically, uh, a confirmation is just a block that's ahead of yours. Uh, It's more recent than yours. So what this allows you to do is it, it allows you to make the assumption that there's a lower probability that the fork will happen at or before your block because there are so many numbers of blocks ahead of yours that the likelihood of the chain forking very far back is next to nothing. I mean, after you wait, uh, you know, I think in Ethereum, it's like 12 blocks. I forget exactly off the top of my head what it is in, in Bitcoin. But in Ethereum, if you wait roughly 12 or so blocks, you can be relatively certain that your transaction was included in the network uh, and you can move on. And that's, you know, kind of from a from a detailed level, basically what's happening. But there's there's not much there. There's there's a Merkle tree, there's a nonce and there's this thing called the proof of work, which is what I was explaining where the. The nonce gets gets randomly uh guessed at until the resultant hash matches some sort of agreed upon criteria
1: i have a question about the duration time of a transaction live in the mempool so mm-hmm. let's say i buy something with bitcoin my transaction will live in the mempool before uh, a bitcoin miner will put that into the blockchains yep so like the time that it takes for a transaction to be written into a blockchain it will be roughly 10 minutes, right?
2: If it gets picked up in that block. Um, and now, it may be that you've included such a low uh, fee that a miner doesn't pick it up um, because there there is a size limit to the block that a, a Bitcoin miner can put forward as being a valid block. And so they have to choose the transactions that they include wisely uh, because they can't go over the size limit. And so it's basically a supply and demand um, marketplace. There's other people out there with transactions in this mempool that are also trying to get on the blockchain. And they've included a fee with their transaction as well. And so the miners are going to be profit maximizing. And so they're going to choose the transactions that give them the most profit. Uh, and so if yours doesn't make the cut, it may be that it takes longer than 10 minutes to get on the on the blockchain. It may be that you have to wait hours or 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 maybe even days.
0: Yeah, I think Owen, you bring up a good point though about um, the ideas of like uh, expected block time and, and block size though, which I think um, are pretty interesting. So like, it is true though that like ten minutes is the the expected time to mine a block, whether or not your transaction is included is um, kind of depending on the fee you offer and whether it makes sense for miners to pick up. But as we were talking before about the the proof of work thing, um, it is interesting. So like, Bitcoin, the expected block time is ten minutes. Ethereum, it's like. 10 to 19 seconds on average. So basically in order to keep that though, you have to make the proof of work algorithm be a sufficient difficulty in order to keep that same expected block time. So if the blocks are being mined too quickly the expected the difficulty should go up, it should be harder to solve the puzzle. And if the blocks are being taking way too long to mine, then the difficulty should go down to keep this kind of expected block time. I think it's also interesting that there's the a block size limit. So, I mean, blockchain was like, it was added, I think, after there was like this one megabyte block limit. Yep. And now it's, um, you know, kind of this like this concept of like block weight. So now it's like somewhere between like theoretically four megabytes, like practically it's about two megabytes per block. But yeah, I think it's like interesting that the, the, there's, like, it's almost controversial, the, the block size for block, for Bitcoin particularly. So, like if it's, if the block size, is too small. The problem is that it's harder to get your transaction to the block. There's like this like bidding war for, you know, potentially it would be discouraging for people to have to spend a lot of money to get their blocks mined. They might not be willing to pay more and they'd have to wait a long time to get their block mined and they might just, you know, give up on using the network. On the flip side, if the blocks are too large, it, you know, makes it more costly to operate this full node. So you're, you know, you have to store more blockchain. It would, you know, it's more computationally expensive to, you know, to verify and deal with all of these transactions in the bigger blocks. It takes more bandwidth to actually run the node, also to download and upload all of these transactions from the blocks. Um, You know, it takes longer to bootstrap a new node. And so it might, you know, discourage more people from mining, which is like, you know, essential to the the ecosystem. Having more miners makes the network uh, more robust. You know if the blocks are also like you know if there's no block limit they might users might not even you know really add fees to their transaction so it might decrease the incentive you know it might give some miners that have big miner pools more of a head start because it takes longer for the blocks to propagate so it might discourage smaller miners from participating in the network so there's all these different trade-offs and um, one thing that's interesting about ethereum is that they actually let miners, um, they use like a block gas limit, and they let miners vote on what the gas limit should be. So basically, the network, it chooses for itself, how it wants to scale. So what the block gas limit should be, and then miners also choose what gas costs they're willing to accept for a transaction. So um, it's pretty interesting that that part of it is also determined by, uh, by the network itself and by the miners participating in it.
1: I still want to clarify the mempool part of it. Like who owns the mempool? Is it distributed? Everyone. Everyone.
2: Each miner keeps a, a record of the, the transactions that they've received from either end users or from other miners that they're connected to. Uh, and they, they just keep it themselves. They, they constantly communicate with each other and they constantly communicate. They're in communication with users who are trying to get transactions sent. And it's basically just kind of kept through communication. It's just on their hardware.
1: So why does Bitcoin or Ethereum use blockchain when it could have used a database or even the distributed log like Kafka?
0: There's some, uh, like, you know, you hear people talk sometimes about like distributed databases being kind of like a blockchain killer, but I think there's a lot of oftentimes distributed databases are still managed by a service provider. So, you know, that's still a central point of failure. Unlike blockchain, there's still like some amount of centralization there. Unlike we were talking about before, where basically everyone everyone owns it, everyone has copies of it. There's no centralization. Um, but even like aside from that, I think there's still some things that distributed databases it's hard for them to do right that I think blockchain, you know, offers a better solution for. So there's always like network delays, connection timeouts. Like it's hard to really ensure perfect communication between distributed databases. So because the communication can be unreliable they have to be able to deal with like data conflicts and knowing, you know, what the real source of truth is. And um, I think that's something that's like built into blockchain at a fundamental level that doesn't exist there. So, you know, with like consensus algorithms for blockchain, you can know what the the true transaction was. It's like, you can't go back and change it. It's fully auditable. Whereas, you know, with distributed databases, there's all of these potential... I mean, even like with you know, people talk about having like acid databases for financial things, most SQL databases don't offer full isolation. So, you know, you can't really guarantee with the same level that you can with blockchain that something is going to be consistent. And then I think also with Kafka, what's interesting about that is like it is crash fault tolerant um, and it works really well for something like Hyperledger. I think, you know, you can use Kafka with like Hyperledger fabric or something. And it's pretty nice as like a private network. Um, But I think where it's lacking that like blockchain solves is that it's not Byzantine fault tolerant. So like a public blockchain like Bitcoin is meant to have a lot of untrusted actors. And so Byzantine fault tolerance is pretty important there. So like, you know, the the Byzantine general problem, like you have two armies and they're invading from different sides and you need to make sure that you attack them at exactly the same time. So you have this messenger and you need to, you know, have perfect communication between the two sides of the army. And you need to make sure that the messenger isn't going to be like replaced, like killed on the way there and replaced by this other like malicious messenger. And so the Byzantine fault tolerance being that um, you can prevent the system from allowing for malicious or faulty nodes. Um, so I think that that's something that, um, you know, for a private network, it's less of a concern. But for a public network where you're encouraging people to interact with people, there's no like um, verification of like who this person is or something. I think it's like that's you know one of the, the reasons why blockchain was a better solution there.
2: There are definitely some ways that blockchain can fail. You know, everyone knows in, in Bitcoin of this thing called the 51% attack. Um, and so it is susceptible to that. You know, Ethereum is, it's hard to write a smart contract correctly in a way that's, uh, you know, can't be hacked is not a great word because no one's like hacking into the system or the smart contract, <laughs> but, but exploited maybe is a better word. Yeah. Um, and, and so there are faults, but, but for the most part, it's the only system that allows a truly decentralized system that can handle possible bad actors, uh, and that doesn't require any sort of registration or identity. Um, all of the other potential, uh, you know, solutions out there don't allow for that, uh, and that, that's really what makes blockchain unique.
0: I think a lot of like the pushback that blockchain was getting is because people were. Um, you know, just like adding blockchain is like a buzzword to their companies. And really, they could have been using decentralized databases.
2: Yeah. And, and for a long time, and, and even still kind of currently, um, it, it was a solution looking for a problem, you know, and, and people <laughs> were just applying it everywhere and everywhere. Yeah. And you're right. And it, it got kind of this bad uh, reputation by a lot of people. And rightly so that, hey, you know, you didn't need to use blockchain here. Like in, in this you know use case, you could have used this other solution. And they were exactly right. Uh, and, and in that sense, it got, you know, very overhyped that it was just going to change. It was going to be applicable everywhere and, it, you know, it was going to completely upend everything and everyone was going to be using blockchain. Uh, and it's not true. It, it, it is a tool that can be used. The pros and cons of that tool should be compared to the alternatives. Uh, and when it's not the right tool for the job, don't use it. It's very good at what it does. Uh, but it, it's not going to replace everything. Uh, it, it is going to make a larger impact in our lives. Uh, in in the future, uh, and it's going to be adopted more and more. And we're going to find you know very interesting and very applicable use cases for it. But it, it got kind of overblown where everyone thought that oh I can just slap some blockchain on here and it's going to be great. Uh, <laughs> and that's it's the wrong it's the wrong mentality. Um, but I, I really do kind of feel like we're I don't know we're like seeing the internet being invented like back in 1988, you know, and and at first people were using it just. You know, basically, is like a glorified FTP server to like send and receive files to each other, and and we're we're still just kind of trying to figure out what it's going to be used for and how it's going to change, and and there are things that we can't even imagine yet that that it's going to be used for. I mean, in nineteen eighty eight, like you know, could you really imagine you know Facebook or or Gmail or or Skype, you know, all these other really awesome things? Um, you know, it, it just takes a little while for a technology like this to mature, but with companies out there like Filecoin, you know, launching later this year, where you're going to have a fully, you know, distributed uh, competitor to things like Dropbox and Box.net. Uh, I mean, that, that's awesome. That's so cool. Uh, and and people are going to continue to push the boundaries and invent really awesome things that we can't even imagine today. Um, and so I, th- I think we're very early in the blockchain life cycle.
1: What are some other interesting use cases of blockchains other than cryptocurrency? Yes,
0: yeah, so I guess we talked a little bit about Filecoin. I think that's like. One thing that's really interesting so IPFS being like this distributed file storage network where you can have, um, you know, that's kind of like one of the, the limitations of using a system like Bitcoin, like it's not really meant to store a ton of raw data. And sometimes, you know, it's we want to have things that are on the blockchain that are associated um, with data, but without using, you know, reverting back to a centralized database. Having distributed file storage um, is really exciting. Having And you really see that things were a certain way at a certain point in time with total certainty, I think causes, um, aside from just like the the monetary transactions, I think like the immutability of blockchain um, and the transparency there is something that's really pretty special. So people being able to know one year ago, this data was like this, um, and then it changed to be like this or this person. Um, change this document to be like this, right? And so I think, um, you know, it's really, could be really important in fields where having data integrity um, and, you know, having a lot of people needing to trust that, you know, something wasn't tampered with is pretty interesting. I think that's like a really exciting use case. And also then, like, introducing for Fogline specifically to introducing incentives for people to actually continue to store this data and um, make it available um, going into the future. Um, You know, I think that's like going to be a huge game changer for a lot of industries. I think also, you know, using it for like government data and systems has also been interesting. It's like kind of cool to see that being embraced. So like Estonia using it for, to like enforce like integrity of their data and systems, making it it harder to manipulate things and knowing that um, their systems aren't compromised. I think it's like, pretty interesting because of seeing the technology embraced by something that's like otherwise a pretty centralized system. is pretty cool. And that also, I think Ethereum is like something that Otto and I are also really mm-hmm. <laughs> excited about, Ethereum particular ecosystem.
2: Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I think there, there are a lot of really cool things that are, that are coming, but it's still very limited. There's very little that you can do right now on, on the Ethereum blockchain. And we've seen some you know, progress being made on the, on the compute level, uh, WebAssembly is kind of the, the hot new thing. And, and Ethereum is, is working to adopt WebAssembly as well with EWASM. Um, you know, e- EOS was probably one of the more, more famous WebAssembly blockchains that's, that's been launched recently that's out there. But there are other people working on, uh, you know, fully deterministic virtual machines. Uh, and, and there are other projects, too, like Golem. Golem has been around for a long time that basically is a distributed trustless compute layer. And what this allows is really some, some very interesting, I guess, kind of a, like, a, like a paradigm shift where you don't need to trust the software that you're interacting with because, it, you know, the, the owner of that software can't censor you. You know, like, for, for example, on Facebook, if, if I post something that's very disparaging to Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook could censor me. They, they could decide to take that post down uh, because they control the compute they control the, you know, what happens to the inputs and the outputs, and they control the data storage layer and all of that. But in, in blockchain, where you, when, when you have a system in place that has distributed storage, like what Firecoin is building, and it has distributed compute, which is like what uh, Ethereum and Golem and, and WebAssembly and, and all these other people are, are trying to push forward, you can now start to build a truly decentralized software system where uh, the contract between the software developers and the owners and the users is completely different. I can use that piece of equipment and know how it's going to act because it's on the blockchain and the people who wrote the code don't own it. It can be run by any miner on the network. Uh, And that's going to change a lot of things. It's going to change, I think, um, a lot of things in in content distribution. We're already seeing people use Ethereum as kind of a blog. There's this uh, really famous transaction that that happened, I think, a year or two ago. It was during the kind of the height of the Me Too movement when the student in in China was investigating uh, allegations against her professor. Uh, and she was basically being shut down by the university in her investigation. And, you know, her posts were being deleted on WeChat. And so she wrote this, this message, both in English and Chinese, uh, on the Ethereum blockchain, uh, and, and basically used it like a, like a blog post. And people started sending her messages to her Ethereum address creating this community discussion, kind of like Twitter in a way. I mean, they were using Ethereum kind of like this Twitter, but in a way that, that couldn't be censored or taken down and that would live on the blockchain forever. Uh, and I think that's kind of a very interesting uh, paradigm shift. You know, it basically changes the contract between users of software and builders of software, where the builders of the software don't necessarily have control over how it gets used. Once they put it out there, it's out there. You can, they, they, they can't censor it. They can't change it. Um, and there's lots of other things that we need done. You know, there's, there's lots of people are working on, you know, how do we basically recreate this like DNS lookup server, you know, using blockchain that no one can control uh, and domain names. How do we, you know, how do we create these domain names where we can have people that own certain, you know, endpoints, uh, but it's not controlled by any sort of authority so that it can't be, you know, can't be taken away from you if you own the rights to it. And, and we're slowly kind of building, you know, all of these tools that we need as computer scientists using blockchain. And I I really do believe that there's going to be two internets. There's going to be this centralized internet, which is good at a lot of things. It's good at, you know, sending lots of bits to lots of concurrently connected users very fast. And it's very good at that. Um, And if you need speed and you're okay with having, you know, a central authority to get that speed, then you're gonna use the centralized internet. So like watching netflix for instance you know might be done on the, on the centralized internet but i really do believe there's going to be a second kind of place that we all go to share information and send information this is going to be kind of a blockchain powered internet and i think social networks and content delivery and payments and all of that kind of stuff is going to happen on this decentralized internet because it benefits from having no authority and no third party who's in control um, you don't want someone taking down your blog posts you don't want uh, you know, Facebook controlling how you interact with your friends and and possibly, you know, using your data for p- ways that you don't want to use. And you get all of those benefits on this new blockchain internet. Um, and I, I really do think that we're going to have a future, I don't know how long, 15, 20 years, probably before we have this.
1: What are the challenges that you see when using blockchain?
0: Yeah, I think like one of the biggest challenges for blockchain is kind of the although the systems are, are totally open, there's a little bit of a barrier to entry in terms of people feeling comfortable and like the gateways to being able to join the Bitcoin network to send Bitcoin transactions or to interact with Ethereum smart contracts are still a little bit difficult. So, I mean, just on a basic level, I think it's been interesting that there are all these now custodial cryptocurrency companies that have um, started running. And I think that's like a lot of it is because a lot of people don't feel comfortable keeping their own private keys so, you know, in order for like the encryption, you know, to work like so, and, you know, it uses like asymmetric key cryptography, so, like I, um, I sign it with uh, my private key with his public key, he decrypts it with, you know, uh, my public key, his private key, um, but like, if I lose my private key, if he loses his private key, I sent him that and he, you know, he's screwed, <laughs> he can't get into his wallet, right? Um, You know, he also like can't access his funds and stuff. That's like one problem is just like a paradigm shift in terms of how uh, people have to interact with things. And like one is um, keeping things like your private key. So on one hand, it's very empowering to people, they totally own things, and they're totally responsible for all their interactions. On the flip side, there's a lot more responsibility to that. And you you now have to, you know, keep track of this, you have to, um, if you're interacting with a smart contract, you should probably know exactly what it does. It's transparent. But then on the flip side, you know, you're kind of taking on the responsibility yourself of of understanding how things work. Um, On the other hand, I think it's also interesting. um, It's a little bit different from how, you know, the other ways that you interact with the internet are, I think. um, So, you know, we're used to having things that are um, you know, very fast and and blockchain by its nature, you know, we have to wait for many confirmations to know that something happened. Um, it's not just like I click a button and then, you know, it immediately changes to say that I've I've sent a payment, you know, before it even maybe reaches the server, like depending on how things are configured. It's like a very different thing and it can be frustrating for people having to deal with this new paradigm of interacting with things. I also think that, so because things are, you know, are immutable, they also can't be changed and that can have trade-offs. So if I wanted to push an update to a service, like if I'm trying to update a website, I just like, you know, change the code blah, blah, blah. and then I like push an update and then everyone sees my new website and, you know, interacts with the new things I can like migrate my users over if I totally transfer my system um, behind the scenes and then they just interact with something that's new and has like updated improvements with blockchain. You know, I deploy a smart contract. I can't actually change that smart contract later. I have to deploy a new smart contract um, and then, you know, have people move over to interacting with this other smart contract if, you know, for future transactions and, um, you know, I can't change the the protocols of the blockchain I've established, even if I think that there might be, um, something more efficient, you know, that's why we have all these, these competing forks, right. So we'll have like, you know, Bitcoin X, Y, you know, um, and I think that, you know, it can be a limitation, especially when people are both, uh, you know, developers and users are used to things, you know, changing really fast. Um, I also think it's kind of interesting because, you know, talking about the early days of the internet, um. If we were to get even like the first iPhone now, we would be like, you know, what is this like piece of shit? Like, right. Because we're used to getting things that are, you know, new and improved. Like, you know, now I get like, you know, the the new iPhone and I'm like, oh, wow, like this is so awesome. And blockchain, I think people a lot of times because it is like a new technology and people are are used to these like kind of incremental improvements over systems that they're already familiar with. They're like, oh, blockchain is going to be so Awesome. Like, it's going to be way better than anything else I've been using. Um, And it does offer a lot of improvements, but it's not the same thing. So, in some ways, it's more like the early internet rather than like a new version of your iPhone, which is like clearly better than the thing that you have been using before because it's like basically the same with some, you know, some improvements, you know. And I think it's like it's improving now, but I think it's something that uh, a lot of people were like, oh, like blockchain is like so cool. And I got all this hype. And then people were like, oh, blockchain actually you know, needs to evolve in these certain ways. And there are these limitations to blockchain. And, you know, in some ways it uh, is worse than other systems I've been using. Um, And I think people aren't used to like experiencing those trade offs of new technology as often.
2: Besides from hacking, um, you know, almost every tool that gets used for good can also be used for for evil. Um, A great tool for people that are trying to launder money, um, which is why there's all these KYC AML uh, rules for for exchanges, uh, reputable exchanges anyway. There's the Silk Road that people were using it to buy illegal things and do illegal things with it. Um, and and honestly, that's one of the reasons I didn't get into to blockchain a long time ago, You know, back in 2012, 2013, when Silk Road was happening and, and Bitcoin was kind of making its, its first splash, one of its first splashes. And I thought to myself, why would I want to touch this thing that drug dealers and, and money launderers use? Like, I don't want, this is like the dark side of the internet, like I don't want to use this. And I didn't really understand its potential. I was kind of turned off to it because of that. And I think a lot of other people were too. And just, just the fact that it's so new, you know, we're not sure how it's supposed to be used. And so we're using it for a lot of things that we're not supposed to. And, and that also gives it a bad name. Um, people say, oh, it's not everything that, that was promised. And, oh, we should have just used these other things. And a lot of times they were right. And it's bad to use it when it's not supposed to because it's going to fail and it's not going to work well. So there, there, there are a lot of downsides. It's, it's, it's not, you know, a totally rosy picture that I'm trying to paint here of Bitcoin and blockchain, even though I love it so much. There are, there are some, some bad things that come with it.
0: Yeah, I think also you just reminded me, Adam, of um, one of the reasons why I was like initially a little skeptical of Bitcoin was the, the proof of work trade off being like, yes, it's like great at ensuring that uh, people are actually like, you know, that you can't fake, you know, compute power and stuff like that. But on the flip side, it's using like tremendous amount of energy Um, and like, you know, pretty wasteful. But I think it's like also interesting that now at least like we we do see things that are trying to like respond to these problems, like we have like proof of stake and like the beacon chain for Ethereum and stuff like that. So I think it's like, that's why I'm very like hopeful about the, you know, blockchain in general. I think it's gonna be a huge thing because there are these problems, but we're also like, um, you know, I think we're really making a lot of progress and like addressing them as best we can and like growing the ecosystem.
2: Totally. And I, I think I think you've hit on a really good point that I, I really do love about blockchain, and, and, and that is that it is very much community driven. You know, Bitcoin is evolving. There are developers, software developers working on Bitcoin today. Uh, and there are people who who disagree with the path that that's taking. And, and so they've they've forked off and, and have done their own thing. Um, you know, Ethereum has a great developer team. Uh, and and they're constantly making improvements, uh, and they're and they're doing it in like an open way where no one has control over it. We're moving forward as a as a community of software developers, and we get to kind of decide, uh, you know, what we want. And if if we don't like it, we're totally free to fork it and and to go in a different direction. And and there's going to be all of these kind of competing technologies that are out there that are offering slight benefits in one direction for slight drawbacks in another direction and you know based on these pros and cons certain chains will be more adopted than others and then there are there are projects like you know Dr. Gavin Woods' new project uh, Polkadot Web3 that are trying to bring all of these under one umbrella. So I also don't believe that there's going to be one chain that rules them all. I think I think every chain offers some pros and cons, and they're just different tools that you can choose between. Uh, and so we need kind of a way for all of these chains to coexist and to communicate with each other.
1: Any potting words of advice for people who want to get into blockchain? Oh man.
2: Um, <laughs> It's just it's just starting. It's it's so exciting to see where this is going to go. Um all the good and the bad that's going to come with it. You know, there are going to be hacks, there are going to be people that have money stolen, there are gonna be people that use it for nefarious reasons, but it's just the beginning and it's very exciting.
0: It's you know, like the wild west of uh, <laughs> of tech right now kinda of. with blockchain. It's like really it's a pretty exciting time, so You know, if you're a developer, it's really not that hard to start getting into some blockchain stuff. And I think uh, you'll probably find it really interesting. Um, And if you're not, I think like, um, you know, participating in the space is also, I think, really fun, like depending on. Um, What you want to do with it, if you want to use it to have uh, something that's, uh, you know, an immutable data store, you want to stop yourself from getting censored, or you just want to buy some cryptocurrency, you know, I think everyone should try to participate in the ecosystem just a little bit, get a taste of it. And I think it'll be like Adam said, like increasingly important. So it's kind of an exciting time right now.
1: How do people get in touch with you?
2: Sure. So uh, you can reach us uh, at AE Studio. And before I before I get the website wrong, I believe it's AE.studio. It is uh, AE.studio. Yes. <laughs> uh, and we're also on Aberkinney. So if you ever want to come by, if you're in the LA area and uh, and you want to come by, we're, we're right here on Aberkinney.
0: You can also, uh, if you want to email us, uh, it's just uh, Melanie at AE.studio or um, go to our website. So yeah, we'd love to talk about anything blockchain or tech-related. We're um, a lot of big nerds over
1: here. Thank you for chatting with us about blockchain, Melanie and Adam. Thank you for having us.
0: Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Kodish podcast. Kodish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.